to begin with today, I want to take you back to the first century Rome, a place that had every right to claim to be the centre of the world because, well, it virtually was. Rome was the centre of the mighty Roman Empire that had extended its tentacles out into virtually the whole of the known world. And I want to feel, I feel I want to describe it as being a godless sort of a place, but it's a bit hard to do that because Rome was obsessed with having all sorts of gods. Even the emperor himself was considered to be a god. And I want you to imagine that from your childhood, as a little Roman boy or a little Roman girl, you've been right into this whole idolatry thing. Every time you go to the butcher to get some meat, he'll upsell it by recounting the story of how it was sacrificed to the gods. Oh, yes, a very nice bit of rib fillet here today, sacrificed to Neptune, to Jupiter it was. Just as well you didn't come in yesterday, though, the, the offering we, we had was to Neptune, and it's still soaking in the brine. But then you sit down for your dinner, and your parents would tell you, how by you eating this meat that was sacrificed to the gods, you are sharing in the sacrifice by eating the meat. And you grew from an idolatrous little child in an idolatrous Roman family to having your own home and your own gods and your own sacrifices. But then something happened that changed your life forever. You heard the gospel and the Lord opened your eyes to the utter foolishness of what you've been doing. And so you've gone and you've burnt all your idols and you've destroyed their altars. But your conscience still troubles you. Every time you sit down for dinner and you look at your dinner plate and there's your roast meat there swimming in blood to honour the gods. And when you eat with, with your non-Christian friends and they say a little prayer of thanks to their household gods before the meal, you just can't do it anymore. You just can't. And just as much as you love meat, every time that it's dished up to you on your plate, your conscience just won't let you eat it because to you, this is worshipping a false god. And you've given up all this to follow Jesus. This is what it has been for repentance for you, to get rid of that. Because now you're committed to Christ. And because meat that has not been dedicated to the gods is almost impossible to find in Rome... You make a decision. I'm just not going to eat meat anymore. But when you get together with, a, with the church for a church dinner, there are others there who don't seem to be quite as troubled by it all as what you are. And they just say to you, your faith is just too weak. Don't you know Jesus is bigger than this? His blood has overcome any bonds that you have to false gods. You're free to eat whatever meat you like. And if you don't eat it, well, that just proves to us that your faith is weak. But your conscience is still troubled by it. And not only that, you're troubled for them. If it feels so wrong for you, how could it be right for them? It couldn't be. And they shouldn't be eating it either, should they? And the fellowship of Christ is in very real trouble. It's in a state of disagreement. It's tearing itself apart over a matter of religious conduct. Am I allowed to eat meat or am I not allowed to eat meat? Now I want to take you to a Jewish family in that same city of Rome. And since you were a child, you've been taught to have nothing to do with meat sacrificed to idols. It is unclean. And you would never eat something like pork 
or meat that still had the blood in it because they'd strangled the animal. And then there's the Sabbath. What separates you from those around you has always been your adherence to the Sabbath. And it's been drummed into you. As Jews, this is what we do. This is who we are. This is how we honour God. This is what God wants of us and it has become our identity. It's what sets us apart from everybody else. But then you too heard the gospel. You heard about the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And you've come to faith and you've joined the church and, and you know in your head what the apostles taught about how all the old cleanliness laws of the laws of Moses don't apply anymore. You know in your head that Christ has set you free from all of this religious observance, but your heart still feels that it's wrong. You feel crook in the guts at the mere thought of eating non-kosher food. Your conscience troubles you so much you could never work on a Sabbath. And you go to church and the same thing happens to you. There seems to be these super Christians there who are so full of beans, but they're not full of beans, they're full of meat. And they're telling you, your faith is too weak. You need to be like us. You need to leave all of that religious stuff behind. That's just legalism. You need to know about grace, brother. But, but you feel that they're the ones who are on the wrong track. After all, you're a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Shouldn't they be sticking to the Jewish practices if they want to worship a Jewish Messiah? And once again, the Christian fellowship is in very real trouble, all over a matter of what people eat and drink. Now, does that help you to understand at all what Romans chapter 14 is about? What Paul is saying here is it's true. Christ has set us free from all of the cleanliness rules and regulations, and we are free to eat whatever food we like. But the key message is, and this is what's the important part for us, the key message is don't let your freedom upset your relationship with your brother or sister in Christ. If your faith is strong, fine, eat your meat. But don't insist that everybody else has to eat it as well. And not only that, if you can see that by you eating meat in front of your brother or sister in Christ, it's upsetting them, well, why would you do that? It's, is it, isn't it more important to maintain the unity of the church than what it is for you to have a feed of steak? And likewise, if you're troubled by eating meat because it may have been sacrificed to an idol, well, don't eat it. But don't you then go and insist that everybody else must not eat it either because they are free to eat. So, the strong are not to despise the weak. The weak are not to judge the strong. So, I've brought some great news to you today, folks. You are allowed to eat meat. And all the people went? Hallelujah! <laughs> Praise the Lord! Yes! In the wise words of the, of the wise sage Homer Simpson, a child's life is at stake. Mmm, steak... You are allowed to eat meat. 
whether it's been sacrificed to false gods or not. But if your conscience is troubling you, then don't eat it. Now, isn't that a life-changing message? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Short sermon, barbecue for lunch. And everybody said, hey, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Really? Is that all we can get out of this? The beef producers are pretty happy with the message so far. Yeah, heads are nodding up and down. What relevance does any of this have to a bunch of Christians living out in the bush in southern Queensland? Put your hand up if you already eat meat. Okay, hands down. Now put up your hand if you will not eat meat because you suspect it's been sacrificed to false gods. Hmm. Not really scratching where it's itching, are we? Hmm. I sort of suspected that'd be, be the case. We don't even have a local slaughterhouse, but if we did, I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't be set up to um, be a temple to other gods. Um, although a lot of the stock produced in this district probably gets slaughtered in accordance with halal for our Islamic neighbours. So what's the relevance of Romans chapter 14? Today, I want to talk to you about freedom. I want to talk to you about what, what are we free to do in Christ? And in Christ, is there anything that we are not free to be doing? And I'm going to be talking about how the way we exercise our freedoms impacts on our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay. Now, from the outset, I reckon I need to define what sort of freedoms in Christ, Romans chapter 14, is actually talking about and what it is not talking about. Verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. All right. Now, does that mean that provided their conscience doesn't trouble them, a Christian is free to do whatever they feel like doing? I'm seeing a few shakes of the head. Good. Well, some would say, yeah, that is what it means, but I'm agreeing with those who are shaking their heads. No, that's not what it means. And when it says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, does that mean that as Christians, we should never question the behaviour of our brothers and sisters in Christ? No, that's not what that means either. Let me be really clear here. All of this discussion in chapter 14 is talking about our freedom in religious observance, our freedom in our religious conduct, our freedom in our religious practices. It is not talking about a freedom of moral or ethical conduct. It is wrong for Christians to pass judgment on one another on matters of religious conduct. But it is actually our duty to pass judgment upon our brothers and sisters in Christ when it comes to moral and ethical conduct. It is our duty to hold one another accountable to godly living. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells them 
we are not to judge those who are outside the church, but we certainly are to judge those who call themselves a brother, right? Anyone who recognises themselves as a Christian. And, and even it's quite strong here. He says we're not even to associate with them. If they claim to be a Christian, but they're immoral or greedy or an idolater or a drunk or a cheat, we shouldn't even associate with them. So we are not free to do whatever we like. We, and we must hold one another accountable, but only in these matters of moral and ethical behaviour. So let's talk about freedom and, and the way that we use our freedoms. And, and I'm just, I th- decided the best way to do this is just pull a couple of examples of issues that Christians deal with and disagree with each other on. And, um, and we'll just discuss these couple of issues. Some Christians religiously keep the Sabbath, although they'll usually do it on a Sunday rather than a Saturday. Do all the kids know what the Sabbath is? Do you know what the Sabbath is? The Sabbath, the rules of the Sabbath would mean that there was one day of the week, and in the Bible it was Saturday, where you weren't to do any work. A lot of Christians um, see Sunday as the Sabbath. So they don't do any work at all on the Sabbath, and that, that was the rule that they like to keep for themselves. Um, Robin and I and our family, we went off to Tonga to visit Robin's parents when they were helping out at a Bible college there. And in Tonga, the law of the land is no work on a Sunday, full stop. You're not even allowed to go swimming on a Sunday unless you're in a tourist resort. Um, and so it's a very, very quiet day in Tonga. Everyone just has lunch and they go to church, then they have lunch and then they sleep. As a teenager growing up in Gundawindi, often after church we'd go across to the primary school tennis courts and have a bit of a bash of tennis. But we had some friends who lived just across the road from those tennis courts and and their their dad, who was the Presbyterian minister, wouldn't let them come across the road and have a bash of tennis with us. Why? Because to him that was working on the Sabbath. And those kids were so disappointed that, that they couldn't join in with us. Now, as a Christian, you are not bound by the laws of the Sabbath. You are free to play tennis on a Sunday if that's what you want to do. You have that freedom. You can even go chipping weeds on a Sunday if that's how you like to fill in your day. But if your conscience bothers you, you're also free not to keep the Sabbath. You are free to have a day of rest with no work. And I know some of you may protest at that, but you are free to do that. God created the Sabbath so that we could have a day of rest. But the point is, just because you're convicted to keep the Sabbath, that doesn't mean that you should be putting your expectations onto everybody else. Because just as you are free to keep the Sabbath, other people are free not to keep the Sabbath. So do you see the way it works? We're not to quarrel over opinions. Here's another example. Alcohol. And we might take this example a little bit further. Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol or not? I know some some Christians who would say, absolutely not. I know other Christians who would say, of course it's okay to drink alcohol. 
I know other Christians who don't see a problem with getting drunk. So, is it okay to drink or not? Well, this is what I can find in the Bible. Drinking alcohol in itself is not a sin. That The Bible never makes a blanket prohibition on alcohol. But there are times when it is wrong to drink alcohol. Now, while drinking alcohol might not be a sin, getting drunk most certainly is a sin. In fact, in the Corinthians reading that I mentioned before, in the Corinthians reading that I mentioned before, drunkenness is seen as such a serious sin that anyone who is guilty of it and will not repent of it should be excommunicated from the church. Now, that tells me it's actually a pretty serious offence. And if you're somebody who doesn't mind having a few too many at times, I would suggest it's time for you to take a good, hard look at yourself and your relationship with God. Because drunkenness is no minor thing. It is a serious sin. And as with any sin, we're not forgiven unless we repent. And repentance means being sorry enough to stop. Repentance means recognising that this kind of behaviour is incompatible with the kingdom of God and therefore it's got to go. But just because drunkenness is a sin does not mean that drinking alcohol is a sin. Just like just because greed is a sin doesn't mean that having a job and earning a wage is a sin. In Christ, we are free to drink alcohol. But there are times when we are not free to drink alcohol. When are those times? Well, obviously, if the laws of the land prohibit it, we are prohibited from drinking alcohol. So if you're a pea plater or a heavy vehicle driver, you are not allowed to drink alcohol. True? Yep, at least not when you're driving. Or if you're visiting or living in a dry Aborigine community, it would be a sin for you to drink alcohol. It would even be a sin for you to take it into the community because the laws of the land prohibit it. A second case where it would be a sin to drink alcohol is if it is likely to lead to drunkenness. And, of course, that raises a, a question which we probably all have in our minds. Well, well where do we draw the line? Where, where do you draw the line at where soberness ends and drunkenness begins? Um, and I personally, um, and I've got to make really clear, this is just my personal position. You know, sometimes in the Bible, Paul used to write, he'd say, um, now I say this, not the Lord. And in, but what he's saying there is God actually hasn't told me specifically this, but this is my personal view on it. And, and then at times, then he'd say, now, not I, but the Lord says this. All right? So at this point, I'm talking from my perspective. The line that I draw in the sand is the point at which it affects one's personality. So the point at which it makes you sleepy or the point at which it loosens your tongue or the point at which you're just not quite so forgiving or the point at which you begin to lose your cool or the point at which 
you have to think a little bit longer before you can answer the person's question. Or the point at which you're not thirsty, but you're just going to keep drinking some more anyway. Or the point at which it affects your reaction speed. And this is my personal view, and you can take it or leave it, is if you're drinking and you've come to that point, and if you're of slight build, that might only be half a standard drink. Or a normal, more bigger person might only be one or two drinks. But if you've come to that point, that's a point at which it's affecting you, and I think that's wrong to drink anymore. As I said, that's my view, and you can take that or leave it. A third case of where it would be a sin to drink alcohol is if the Lord has specifically convicted you that you should not drink it. John the Baptist is a good example of this, as is Samson. And, and anyone else in the Old Testament who took a vow to God to become a Nazarite, they took a vow which included the fact that they would drink no alcohol. And many people today believe the Lord have led them to be teetotalers, right? As a Christian, they would be free to drink alcohol, but they have been convicted by the Lord that they will not drink alcohol. And, and they, some people have then taken a vow to that effect or even signed a pledge to say, I will not drink any alcohol. And if you're one of these people, if you have been convicted by the Lord not to drink alcohol, then you most surely must not drink alcohol. If you've been convicted by the Lord not to drink it, well, don't drink it. Verse 5 says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And if you have been convinced that this is how you are to honour the Lord, well, you make sure you honour the Lord by abstaining. Now, there's another word the kids might know. Do you know the word abstain? Abstain means you're in a position where you can do something, but you choose not to do it. So we might be in a meeting and we might be deciding whether we're going to, for our kids' stories from now on, only buy packets with red snakes in them or whether we're going to buy packets with various coloured snakes in them. And some people say, yes, we're going for the red snakes, and others say, we're going for the mixed coloured snakes, and you can't make up your mind. Hmm, I don't really don't know. I'm happy either way. Well, you could abstain and just not vote in the meeting, okay? So you have the right to do something, but you choose not to do it. All right, and, it come, and that's where it comes with alcohol. You honour the Lord by abstaining. But don't you then pass judgment on others who don't abstain. They are God's servants. Who are you to judge them? Because in Christ, they are free to drink. You have been convicted by God. They have not. So you are abstaining as an act of faith, but if they were forced to abstain and they don't feel that the Lord is convicting them to do this, and so it's not coming from faith, it would be wrong. And we have to remember it is the Lord who convicts, it's not us who convicts. Verse 22 says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself 
for what he approves. You know, most of the time, I, I can very often get up here and say, you know, this is, we, we tend to think too personally and, and we should be actually thinking about this matter more as a group of people, as, as the church. Well, this is one of these cases where this is, act, is actually a personal conviction. The Lord convicts individuals. And I also want to say to those who do drink, don't you there dare go and brand those who don't drink as being wowsers or, or telling them that they're legalistic because they're not. They are honouring the Lord by being obedient to the conviction that God has put upon them. Fourthly, it would be wrong to drink alcohol when your drinking is likely to cause somebody else to stumble. And once again, I'll give you an example of how I personally would apply this. If I'm at a function and, I, and there's alcohol present, and if there is an alcoholic there, or a recovering alcoholic, I will not touch a drop of alcohol. I would rather never drink a drop of alcohol ever again than to be the cause of an alcoholic falling off the wagon. And this is the same reason that we use non-alcoholic wine at communion. It would be a terrible thing if a recovering alcoholic fell off the wagon because he came to communion and he had a drink of alcoholic wine and that tipped him over the edge. And likewise, if I'm at a party and there are some there who are heading towards getting drunk, I wouldn't touch another drop either. Whether we drink or whether we don't drink, we are to do it honouring the Lord. And drinking alcohol in solidarity with those who are getting drunk, I personally feel is an honouring of the Lord. And fifthly, it would be wrong to drink alcohol if it was putting a strain on a relationship with a Christian brother. Are you aware that we have Christian brothers and sisters who are so convinced that it is wrong to drink alcohol, it grieves them deeply when they observe other Christians doing it. Are you aware of that? Because it's very true. Verse 15 says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, and we'll throw in the word, or drink, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, or drink, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Right? Are you getting this? If by drinking you are causing your Christian brother or sister to grieve, why would you do it? That's not walking in love. Yes, we are free to drink alcohol. But why would we ever exercise that freedom if it's cutting up our brother or sister? Why would we do it? I guess, what does it boil down to? What do we love more? The grog? Or fellowship with our brother or sister? Verse 21 says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. All right? So that's just two examples 
of how as Christians we are free in the area of religious practice. Now, knowing the way the, the head and the mind works, I want to remind you of something at this point. When you go home after church and you're having dinner and you're, and you're talking about the sermon, I want you to be very clear in your mind that the sermon wasn't about alcohol. Have you got this? The message wasn't about alcohol. The message wasn't about keeping the Sabbath. I want you to realise that these were just two examples that I gave to help us to try and grasp the principle of how our freedom in our religious practices must always yield to the higher calling of the mutual upbuilding of the fellowship. That's what today's message is about, the mutual upbuilding of the fellowship. And we could use this same principle to help us to decide all sorts of issues that people grapple with. So we could use it to decide whether it's right for a worship leader to choose all heavy metal or punk rock worship songs in church. You know, because is that a right thing to do when all of the oldies in the congregation, people like me, are going to hate it? You know, why, why would we do that? Yes, you are free to have your heavy metal punk rock worship songs in church. But not if it's going to hurt your brother or sister so much. Or if your Christian brother has been brought up to eat fish on a Friday, well, let him eat fish on the Friday. But don't you then expect that every, everybody else has to eat fish on a Friday. Mind you, it's a good excuse to have a good feed of fish. Or a Christian sister might want to give up something for Lent. Well, let her honour God by giving up something for Lent. But then she shouldn't then expect that everybody else has to give up something for Lent. We could talk about it in, in issues of daily Bible reading. Right? Some people set for themselves a very long and stringent set of readings that we have to read every day. Now, that's great. That's the way you honour the Lord. That's the way you're being built up in, in Christ and learning the Word. But don't you then go and expect that everybody else has to do exactly what you're doing, right? We can apply this to all sorts of things. In everything we do, we should do it to honour Christ. And by doing so, we gain his approval. Take a look around you. I saw a couple of eyes swivel. I think I saw a head move and the eyes stay in exactly the same spot. I want you to actually look around you. That, that will actually include moving your head and looking, 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 and actually seeing real people in real seats. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you seen them now? You saw them? Yeah? It's a bit surprising, some of them, aren't they? Yes? Well, these are your Christian brothers and sisters. And the choices that we all make in exercising our freedoms will either build us up in love or they'll just tear apart what God is, do, what God is building. I believe the Lord is building something beautiful here. 
I believe the Lord is building something beautiful here. A group of people who love the Lord coming together and fellowshipping together as a community in Christ. And the choices we all make in exercising our freedom will either build us up in love or it will tear apart what God is building. Verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Do you get this? The kingdom of God isn't about our little religious rules and whether we keep them or not. It's about righteousness. That simply means right living. And part of this right living is maintaining a fellowship of love. So it's about righteousness. It's about peace. And it's about joy. So how about it? How about we exercise our freedoms in a way that builds each other up in love righteousness, peace, and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the freedom that, that we have in Christ. Lord, I want to thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross to set us free from all of the burden of sin. Lord, I want to thank you that we have this permanent state of righteousness, that by the blood of Jesus he has washed us clean, so that we can come before you in, in, into the very presence of God. We can live in the presence of God because your Holy Spirit is inside of us. Lord, how great of a difference this is to the way it was before Christ. Whether all of the religious rules and regulations that used to be kept to try and keep people clean so that they could worship a holy God. So, Lord, I want to thank you for the freedom that you give us. But, Lord, I pray for wisdom and love and righteousness for us as a people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to always exercise our freedoms in a way that demonstrates our love to our brother or sister in Christ. Lord, we confess to you that there are times, and there's probably been many times, when we've taken our freedoms for granted and we've hurt others by what we've done. Sometimes we've, we've gone, we've actually taken our, our freedoms so much for granted that we've sinned in what we've done. Oh, Lord, please forgive us. And Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts and change us to become more like you. Lord, make us a fellowship of love, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.